Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their spleen about history. The podcast where we partition myth and then make sure it can never exist again. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my long-suffering partner in rage, Kyle Glover. Yeah, not off. Six seasons of this. Six seasons, which you know what that means. Now, I'm not saying we're more popular than Breaking Bad. I'm not saying that, but we have had more seasons on it. And Dynasty yeah, as well. Got, we've got more staying power than Breaking Bad and Dynasty, and uh, and frankly, I mean, we just because just because we're it. the ones making it doesn't apply. But you know, well, you know, somebody started Breaking Bad and went time to quit. It's not really going anywhere. And yeah. here we are. That'll be me in about three episodes' time, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, welcome back, Ragehounds, for another packed season. We have conspiracy, witchcraft, and surgery for you over the next few weeks. But today, we're diving back to 19th and 20th century Europe. And to take us into the murky fog of pre- and post-war Germany, we welcome historian, research fellow at King's College London, Washington Post columnist, and author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, Katja Hoyer. Katja, welcome to History Rage. Hello, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you. Feeling angry? Um, I'm getting there. You're getting there. Okay. Well, we can slowly, <laughs> we can slowly build up that powder keg. <laughs> now, you came to us off the back of quite a few recommendations, but one of those is one of our loyal ragers, A.D. Bond, who just <laughs> tagged you on Twitter until you agreed. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for coming. And thanks to A.D. Keep up the good work. We, uh, we, we keep going with guests. Uh, but can you give us a short history of you and how you came to be where you are? Um, well, so I, I was born in Germany, so hence my uh, German-related rage as well. Um, but I've lived in Britain for over 10 years now and, and done most of my, my work here. Um, most of my stuff is on Germany as well, so be that in the present. So as you mentioned, I, I write for the Washington Post and some British newspapers as well, like The Spectator, for example, Telegraph and, and some others. 
on German current affairs, um, but I'm really a, a kind of historian um, in terms of my background. And uh, as you mentioned, my book's Blood and Iron, my first one, which was on the on the Second Reich, basically the, the build up to um, the First World War and then um, the First World War itself, uh, looking at kind of that sort of history. And my uh, next book is on uh, East Germany. So I'm sort of trying to piece together that complicated puzzle that is Germany and German history. Yeah, I mean, when when we hear the Second Reich, the Third Reich, the you know, what's the First Reich? Uh, the Holy Roman Empire, um, or at least that's how the the Nazis sort of like to portray it. They really came up with these kind of terms in in terms of trying to put themselves into a a succession of German empires or German Reichs. So hence why they made themselves the Third Reich, basically referring to Imperial Germany as the second one and, and the Holy Roman Empire as the first one. Yeah, so we're looking sort of medieval Tudor times and then the Second Reich being more what we would term as like Georgian and Hanoverian times. And then, yeah, I don't think anybody needs explaining what the Third Reich was. Well, excellent. So so it's within that Second Reich then that you're you're wanting to rage today. So let's kick this into first gear and really get going. Well, my rage goes even a, f- a bit further back, actually. My rage is partially about the fact that Prussia is um, seen as as this kind of uh, 19th and 20th century thing that caused all of Germany's troubles in that time. So really, my, my entire thing is about this uh, kind of idea that Prussia is at the heart of all of Germany's problems, that Prussia was evil, it was militarist, it is kind of everything that is bad about Germany. Once you take Prussia out of Germany, Germany will be a nice, peace-loving nation, no more problems. And this is kind of why Prussia got abolished in 1947 after the Second um, World War, because the idea was take that out and, you know, Germany will kind of be rid of all of it, its militarist and warlike um, kind of tendencies, if you will. I mean, when people think of Prussia, they think Pickelhauer, they think monocles, they think goose-stepping, you yeah. know, they think Paul von Hindenburg, if you're, if you're lucky. But, you know, what happened to Frederick the Great? What happened to liberalism? What happened to Immanuel Kant? What happened to Königsberg? What happened to, I don't know, the, the bloody potato was introduced by Prussia. You know, nobody is even thinking about that anymore. That's a good thing, surely. You know, so there's a lot, lot more to Prussia than uh, kind of German militarism and, and uh, you know, all of the uh, catastrophes that emanated from that. And, and this is really what I'm here to be angry about today. Good. I can see you're getting there already as well. Yeah. Getting bright um, red in the face as well. I hope you're, <laughs> you're taking screenshots there. So, so geographically, where are we talking about at the moment then? That depends what you mean by at the moment. It's quite a complicated evolution of Prussia. So it's, it's heartlands are uh, Brandenburg, um, basically. So this is like north, what, what would be kind of northeast Germany. Yeah. today um but it stretched all the way into the baltics so Königsberg, that i was just referring to um is is kaliningrad today so it's really kind of far into the east um now a, a russian um enclave um it includes cities like danzig or gdansk today in, in poland so it's this entire northern stretch along the, the baltic coastline and then at its largest extent, um, after the Napoleonic Wars, it goes all the way over to uh, West Germany, what, what is West Germany today, including places like Cologne, for example, the rural region. Mm. Um, so it's kind of imagine sort of North Germany, the northern sort of half of Germany, and then going all the way into uh, Poland to towards Russia. So what is it about Prussia that 
gives birth to this idea? How do we go from the vaunted, if somewhat overlooked, Prussian assistance at Waterloo that Zach White referred to in an earlier episode to this idea that Prussia is evil? I think the problem was that after the Second World War, everyone needed and wanted Germany to basically become a reliable partner. So be that to, you know, the Eastern part to Russia or the Western part to uh, to the to the Western bloc, to the US and to Britain and to France again. But one couldn't get around all of the crimes that Germany had committed during the Second World War. I mean, as it unfolded, you know, with the with the post-war trials, people found out about the the sheer scale of the Holocaust and the, the atrocities that the Wehrmacht committed as well in, in the East mainly. All of that was there and, and needed to be reconciled with the idea of just letting Germany kind of recover again. Um, and so I think they, they just needed something or someone to blame. And the idea is that once you'd kind of punish those responsible, Germany could move on again without that sort of blemish in its in its national soul, if you will. Um, and so it was quick, pretty quickly decided that that blemish was Prussia. Um, Churchill was was one of the driving forces behind that. He had this kind of idea of, of Prussia as, as, as this kind of militarist element within the German um, national psyche, really. Mm. And so it's almost like, you know, you kind of exercise this evil spirit out of the German national body and then this kind of pure Germany will rise again without this uh, kind of militarist heart that it used to have. Um, and this allowed people to kind of leave the idea of of kind of bad Germany behind and rebuild both of the Germanys um, after the Second World War. And I think that's why it was easier for people to blame Prussia for this rather than Germany, because Germany just had to continue to exist for practical and political reasons. Yeah, and I'm thinking, if I want somebody to blame for the Holocaust and for the Second World War, I, I know who. It's <laughs> fairly obvious, you know. I, I don't need to get a leading historian on to point that one out to me. When, where I come unstuck with this, of course, is that that means that there's got to be some form of link, however tenuous, between National Socialism and everything it did and Prussia and everything it was. What is that link? Well, that's I think my issue with that is that there isn't an obvious link to that. I think this was very much just like the First World War as well, very much a, a German thing rather than a Prussian thing. I mean, as you say, like, you know, looking looking at Hitler as the culprit here is, is the obvious answer. Yeah. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that the crimes committed were on, on such a huge scale that he needed the support of a large amount of people to be able to do what he did. Um, and so it was obvious that, you know, the, the German populace as a whole was you know, largely complicit in this in one way or another, either by staying passive or by by act actively engaging in some of these things. And people needed to find reasons for that. And one of the reasons found, you know, that people could live with in the long term was that, that there was something about Prussia that, that made this happen. It also allowed people to draw a link between the Second World War and the First World War. You know, people were also still trying mm -hmm. to find answers. Why did Germany do this kind of mass scale well, why did it did it um, bring about this mass scale suffering onto the European continent like twice within, you know, a generation effectively? And that's again the link there is easily found in Prussia, and I think that's that's why people did that because it allowed kind of Germany and Europe to move on. So, going a little bit further back in time, then 
you mentioned one of the questions that you sent through to me and one of the kind of outlines that you sent through to me that Prussia is at least thought, or maybe it has done, uh, provoked wars in order to unify Germany by force. Now, that was a new one for me. It's not my area of expertise at all. So what what can you tell us about those? So in the beginning of the 19th century, Germany still didn't exist as a, as a nation state. So, you know, you mentioned the Napoleonic Wars earlier. Germany fought those as like a collection of, of German states. And when Germany unified itself as a country in 1871, it did so on the back of an, a series of wars that were led by, by Prussia and the German, other German states basically unified behind Prussia to fight these wars. And so quite often it's seen as a kind of Prussian led, you know, unification process that only happened like through war. I mean, Otto von Bismarck, the, the Prussian prime minister, uh, who was kind of the instigator of a lot of this famously said that stuff doesn't get done through like diplomacy and voting and, and niceness. It gets done with blood and iron, um, which is sort of nicked for the title of my book. But because of that, um, you know, you get this idea that it was Prussian militarism in the first place that basically made Germany. I have a bit of a problem with that as well, but because most of these were well, all three of these wars really were, yes, provoked by Prussia, but actually declared and started by the other nations involved. So if you take the first one in 1864, that was uh, against Denmark. That was the Danish king, you know, kind of just claiming territory in the north um, of Germany or the south of Denmark, depending on how you want to see it, for himself. That wasn't his to take. That had internationally been agreed, basically, what, what should happen with Schleswig and Holstein, those two territories. Mm-hmm. And he just decided, right, I'm going to have a bit of that. Um, and that gave gave Prussia basically the excuse to to go to war with them. Um, and, and similarly, you know, you have Austria basically as the other large German power on the continent alongside Prussia. And that was always going to come to a head one way or another until war basically breaks out in 1866 between Prussia and, and Austria. And then lastly, the, the uh, Franco-Prussian war against um, France, which again, you know, is, is sort of provoked by Bismarck in, in a rather cunning way. But nonetheless, I think, you know, that was a conflict that was bound to happen just because France itself needed external conflict to hold itself together. That regime under Napoleon III was was crumbling to the point of, you know, self-destruction, basically. And and there was previous elements like 1840, for instance, the French tried to provoke a crisis with, with Prussia the other way around, basically claiming territory in the Rhineland because it was helping them internally. So one way or another, I think this wasn't necessarily... Uh, created or provoked by Prussia, it was managed and exploited by it rather than kind of brought about by it in the first place. Yeah, and I suppose if then you're dealing, you're coming forward and dealing with looking back at the First World War and then looking back at the Second World War and one of the groups that is looking at that as well as Germany is France, they're going to naturally feed in that Franco-Prussian war into being a long-term cause of cause of all these problems aren't they yeah absolutely and to them it's always been a, a thing you know they when you look at for instance the the treaty of versailles after the first world war um you know that was timed exactly the opening of of the peace conference in 1919 was timed exactly to coincide with the with the foundation of the german state both on the 18th of of january um so 1871 germany was founded 1918 the idea was to destroy it again, basically, to undo, um, as, as the French prime minister said, Poincaré, to undo the, the sort of evil that had been done on the continent, i.e. 
by creating Germany, trouble was caused. Now it needs to be undone. Um, so you get the, you really get a sense there that already this idea that you know a unified Prussia Germany basically is a bad idea on the continent and, and shouldn't exist. So what role did the Prussian military elite play in both causing and prolonging and extending the first the first world war once once it had begun? They did play a huge role. So this is one of one of the yeah. reasons why why people do uh, sort of yeah. blame Prussia for it. I mean, like I said, people tend to think about like Hindenburg and Ludendorff, of course, as the two um, leading mm. figures there. But you've also got Helmut von Moltke, you know, Falkenhayn. All of these figures are a part of the of this kind of Prussian Junker aristocracy or Junkers, as they're called. They do sideline the Kaiser before the First World War. And then during the First World War, they pretty much take over. I mean, they run the country as a dictatorship from at the very latest from 1916, arguably from 1914. And so, yes, they do prolong that war and they do start it in many ways as well in the sense that they're sort of certainly happy with that war to, to happen. They plan, you know, famously with the Schlieffen plan from like 1905, 1906 onwards, they, they plan and prepare for this uh, kind of large scale European war. However, I would argue that it's not like the rest of Germany is sat there and, and sort of wary of this and gets dragged into this war by by Prussia. I mean, you have like the other kings, for example, still exist. People tend to forget that. You still have the king of Bavaria, uh, Ludwig, mm -hmm. who immediately steps out onto his own balcony um, in Bavaria and, and calls upon his own Bavarian people to go to war, bearing in mind that his army has got independence still. He, there is a Bavarian army still, you know, and they sign up to this war as well and go go with it. There's this, obviously this famous picture of the declaration of war, you know, in Munich. Uh, whether that's real or not, but basically you see sort of a, a Hitler-like figure uh, cheering there um, because Hitler's in Munich at this point, um, listening to that very carefully and, and of course, going to war um, himself. So, you know, the same in Saxony. You've still got the Saxon army and under the Saxon king's leadership, they go to war. Um, and it's not a coincidence that they all have to uh, abdicate, basically, after the First World War when when the, the German Kaiser and Prussian king Wilhelm um, II goes. So in my view, to then sit there afterwards and say, you know, oh, it was the Prussian military elites and, and we're all innocent, yeah. <laughs> uh, goes a bit too far. This is really, I'm not trying to excuse Germany. I'm just saying this isn't entirely an, yeah. a Prussian the others, thing. The others were just as keen on it as the Prussians. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. quite the reverse. In not trying to excuse Germany, we are in fact trying to... <laughs> the rest of Germany is being involved as well. Um, you mentioned there 19, was it 1904, 1905, do you, was it the Schlieven plan that you uh, mm. called it? Could you just kind of tell us what that was? Uh, so the Schlieffen plan was kind of uh, a, a means of, of dealing with Germany's awkward geographical position. So the fact that it's in the centre of Europe means that if it does go to war, um, you know, effectively, it'll have to avoid a two-front war if, if its enemies um, sort of surrounded. And that, that was always this kind of famous fear of encirclement that, that Germany had right from its um, inception. And to some extent, actually, that, that applies to Prussia as well. So being in the centre of Europe with no obvious boundaries, uh, like, say, a sea or, or mountain ranges or anything like that, means that effectively you are quite vulnerable to attack. And the Schlieffen Plan was meant to like come up with a solution for that and basically preempt that. Um, so the idea was to basically take France out quickly um, and then turn the army onto onto Russia. But the problem was because they came up with this plan so 
early and talked about it repeatedly, including with the Kaiser, you know, going through all sorts of wargaming scenarios, it effectively became almost like a kind of formula for victory in the heads of decision makers, including the Kaiser. Um, and so this was effectively a way of making a, a kind of large scale European war palatable and acceptable to those that made those decisions in the end, including the Kaiser himself. And that's, I think, where the Prussian elites do come in and have a, a significant role to play, because effectively they're surrounding the Kaiser and telling him those things. Yeah, and it does seem to be a kind of standard battle plan as you say, to take France out of the picture and then turn your attention to Russia. Mm. It's happened time and time again. Uh, and not just, you know, not just in the more modern history, but, you know, even going, even going back as, you know, as far as the early 19th century, it's, it's still floating around there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just before I kind of dive in on um, on the next question, because we... We talk, and I've heard it, we talk about that kind of Prussian military ideal and style that gets mentioned about people like Hindenburg and Bismarck, and mentioned about Ludendorff, and mentioned about Hitler and the Nazis and so forth. For, for those people out there who don't look as much as we do at modern history, I mean, what is that Prussian ideal, that Prussian character that, that they're blaming for everything? So I think most of these cliches evolve around kind of obedience, loyalty, like a blind faith in, in leadership, fighting to the death, basically kind of like almost a self-sacrifice kind of idea for the orders that you've been given effectively without really thinking about them. Um, but also many of the German cliches come from like Prussian cliches. So things like efficiency, punctuality, ruthlessness you know all of these kinds of uh ideas i think they most of them go back to uh like sort of prussian values or, or kind of prussian uh characteristics i suppose that people associate with that country so that leads neatly into our next question so these prussian ideals of loyalty and faithfulness and sticking things through until the very end isn't it, isn't it said this often leads to the Prussians being partly to blame for the lack of there being any kind of opposition to the Third Reich and to Hitler himself? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Okay. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Um, well, I think there's so yeah. many reasons against yes. that. I mean, to start with, Hitler's an Austrian, right? So, yeah. I mean, he, he grows Except up in Austria. Age. and 
and and you know Austrians now and no well, not anymore so much but certainly after the second world war they they kind of created this myth of them being like Hitler's first victim and you're like well mm -hmm. hang on a minute you know <laughs> how does that work yeah, but this sort of idea, for instance, that that that's somehow in in, in like mm. national socialism as a as an intrinsically Prussian idea. I mean, there, there's so much to unpack there. There's you know this kind of so-called Völkisch thing, for example. This is like a mythical idea of some sort of Germany that never existed. So people believed in this kind of traditional, you know, Lederhosen poems, mm. blood and soil kind of stuff, where it's like, oh, the German people have lived on this land for ancient since ancient times and, and they're connected with it and it's like some sort of half you know ethnic half kind of racial yeah. uh like idea basically of germanness and that is not a prussian thing it's just it exists in prussia as well but most of these Virgish groups or certainly a lot of them are also based in bavaria and in the south um and you get lots of them and it's not necessarily something that hitler invented either this goes way back into the 19th century uh, where you have all of these odd groups that meet they're quite sort of esoteric as well you know they they believe in things like runes and and kind of ancient mm. rituals and paganism and all of that kind of stuff which you later see it linking in you know into nazi ideology as well with with kind of you know himmler's castle thing for example where he has like rings handed out to his um yeah. Um, yeah. SS uh, charges and so on and so forth. So all of that links into Nazism, but it isn't something that the, either the Nazis or the Prussians invented as such. So the actual ideology itself, I would say, isn't Prussian. But what helps certainly, or what what kind of made this a lot worse, I think, is indeed this kind of industrialization and and the kind of ruthless kind of industrial buildup of Russia. I think just made it the calamity that it was in the end basically it facilitated the the sort of if you think about the holocaust for example the sheer mass destruction of people how you get from this kind of extremist ideology to an actual attempt to eliminate millions of people you know on an industrial scale i think that was in part facilitated by by um sort of the industrial structures that were built up in in prussia and in the mm. north um so it's it's in my view a combination of those things um, but it is certainly not something that is intrinsically Prussian. You see that as well in the split in Nazi ideology later. So, for example, you have this like northern Nazi branch uh, led under the, the, the Strasser brothers, uh, Gregor Strasser in particular, who becomes like an early rival to Hitler. Um, initially, actually, Goebbels is part of that branch as well. They're very kind of focused on the socialist side of national socialism. Um, almost to the point of, you know, kind of uh, sort of nationalizing industries and those kinds of things. And in the South, it's much more focused on kind of this leadership cult and, and, and those sorts of things. So you do get, even within Nazism, kind of like a northern and a southern branch, if you will. So what sort of opposition to Hitler was around? Not a lot. Um, it's, it's, in my view, quite overplayed because people focus on it a lot, especially in, in German historiography. And quite rightly so, because these individuals were so brave to do what they did. Um, so, for instance, you have the White Rose group um, with, mm -hmm. with the uh, Scholl um, siblings, Hans and Sophie, um, who handed out leaflets in, in Munich to try and, um, at least as Sophie said it in the end in her, in her trial once they were caught, you know, to try and at least show the world that not all Germans were like this. Um, and that's effectively what they've achieved with this, I think. But on the whole, it's got to be said that it was a fairly universal 
thing, which is also one of the reasons why I think, again, it's a German thing rather than a Prussian thing is because it was so widespread. I mean, a really good recent study is uh, Julia Boyd's latest book. Uh, it's called The Village in the Third Reich, um, which kind of looks mm. at just one village uh, called Oberstdorf, which is really in the in the far south of Germany um, in Bavaria. Uh, and it kind of just follows that village as a micro study all the way through. And you can see, you know, basically all the different social groups, men, women, different ages, different types of people um, and, and how they're all kind of connected one way or another um, with Nazi ideology. And, and there are people who are opposed to it, even within that community as well, and try and do what they can to mitigate the impact. But equally, most of the village kind of goes along with it. Um, and, and that, for instance, again, just goes to show that you know, this isn't something that is is happening in in Prussia in the north, and and the rest of Germany kind of just gets dragged along with it. Okay, so coming to the end of the Second World War, and this is this is a bit of a close question, but I'd like you to give an open answer. <laughs> so, were the Allies right to abolish Prussia? I think that's a that's a really weird one because. Intrinsically, obviously, I'm inclined to say no. Um, <laughs> I know it was a leading one, but there you go. No, but it is it is a difficult one because so much of the land that was Prussia was lost after the Second World War. So basically, those lands are described earlier in the east. Um, so what is now northern Poland and and part of this this Russian enclave of uh, Kaliningrad as well is was was kind of what Prussia actually was, where it came from. Um, so. If if they'd stuck with Prussia as one of the German states, then that would kind of be a live issue. You would you would still think in terms of oh, there's once Prussia once had this and that land still in the east, and there would never be any closure to that. I mean, twelve million people, twelve million Germans were relocated under under yeah. fairly brutal conditions from there. My my own family were part of that as well. My my grandfather was from uh, Königsberg. Uh, for example, my, my one of my grandmothers was from Pomerania, so a bit further in the west, but still in what is now Poland. Yeah. And you would, I think, if they hadn't got rid of Prussia, you would have people saying, you know, where's the rest of Prussia, and when are we going to get it back? And you would still have arguments about that. And mm-hmm. I think by eradicating kind of Prussia and its and its legacy in name, um, it allowed kind of East and West Germany to. Uh, come to terms with that and basically accept it um, and, and give it up in the end, effectively, the claims on that land. Um, so I think in that respect, it was probably a, a sensible, I suppose, or a pragmatic decision that, that was made. Um, it should be said, actually, and this is something that people forget as well, that the Nazis effectively abolished Prussia. So they, they took away Prussian independence um, right at the beginning of Hitler's reign, um, and thereby effectively made it null and void then. So again, you know, in terms of how much did Prussia actually have to do with, with Nazism, Hitler clearly saw it as a, as one of the threats basically to his centralized power, um, and, yeah. and took kind of Prussian independence away from them. So it was already de facto abolished and all the Allies did was kind of put a, you know, put a kind of legal line under mm-hmm. that, if you will. Would you say, and, um... Forgive my tinfoil hat conspiracyness here, though. But if you're looking at that kind of post-war settlement, and there is a region uh, of old Germany that, to all intents and purposes, now a like you say has been pretty much abolished by the Nazis at the start of the war, anyway, and quite a huge chunk of that area is now Poland, and some parts of it are now Russia. Is there a case for like? 
building up that blame of Prussia so that what you do is something that looks decisive but doesn't actually do anything, but just makes <laughs> everybody go away and stop complaining and start getting on with the settlement. Yeah, I think there there was a, a case of, of that. I mean, people realised pretty quickly that like actual real denazification of Germany was quite difficult to achieve. I mean, you know, with, you have all sorts of problems then. I mean, everybody who had some sort of skilled or higher up job of any description was pretty much involved with with Nazism you know even if you take somebody like I don't know a GP you know they would have had to Mm -hmm. enforce like racial laws effectively whether they liked to or not you had teachers they had to sign up on mass to uh, into the Nazi party and obviously teach you know what what the Nazi party told them to teach including um, anti-semitism and and uh, sort of you know all sorts of other uh, Nazi ideology Um, so if you denazify properly and take all of these people out of their jobs you have nobody left you know to do anything really um and (laughs) that became a problem so kind of the idea that you take Prussia out of that and I mean there were different approaches to that the Americans basically believed for quite a long time that there was something intrinsically German rather than Prussian about what happened um, and so they, they believed there was something in the German psyche that needed to be dealt with. Was Stalin, interestingly, quite famously said, like, the Hitlers come and go, but the German people stay. So he kind of just pretended that the German people were led astray by, by Hitler and they weren't actually bad. But one way or another, you know, both of these sides needed to take the German people and, yeah. and make something new out of them. And so kind of dealing with Prussia and, and kind of punishing Prussia really by, by effectively killing it or eliminating it was seen as a, as a way of dealing with that and sort of dealing with Nazism and taking that out of Germany. Although I think most people were aware that it's more of a kind of nominal thing than, than a real attempt to, to sort of clean Germany, if you will. Yeah, well, like I say, I suppose, if you've got all those people that are involved with Nazism in somewhere or another, I mean, if you come to, just if you come to set up West Germany, you're going to need police. And what were those police likely to have been doing during the war? You know, you can't, you can't really get entirely shot of it. So it seems, it seems like to me at least that almost symbolic gesture of getting rid of this thing that's pretty much already gone. Yes. I mean, the army was an even bigger problem, you know, in terms of you, you can't just have, you know, like new, a new officer call out of nowhere. Um, so mm. it's, it's those kinds of issues where even in the East where denazification was, was a bit more thorough than in the West. Um, you still ended up with a lot of the, the army basically being recycled and and that of course directly links into Prussia you know at least you kind of took those old kind of allegiances away or that was the idea um you know and you kind of re-polled people towards uh allegiance either towards the US or to, uh, like towards NATO effectively or towards uh the Warsaw Pact. So just to start to wrap things up a little um what if anything is Prussia's legacy and how should we remember it today? Well I think the fact that it was once basically a European superpower that has now mm. simply vanished or like disappeared, it should have a little bit more in the you know in the public consciousness than just like a oh good riddance <laughs> you know this thing is gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's not ever mention it again. Um, you know, apart from that, in the context of of all the bad stuff it did. I mean, there's already within Germany, certainly, there's there's been quite a, a kind of concerted effort to complicate and to complexify like Prussian history, both East and West, uh, during the Cold War. 
So, for example, Prussian palaces have been um, restored, artworks being looked after, that sort of thing. So that's all happening. Uh, German school children learn about um, Prussia again and including like this older Prussian legacy, uh, particularly Frederick the Great, uh, for example, and the bloody potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) People, by the way, still put like actual potatoes down on his... um, uh, on his estate in Potsdam, you know, to <laughs> commemorate that. So Germans, Germans are indeed very grateful. Yeah, I used to do that as a as a kid. My my dad used to take me there quite a lot um, for like sort of days out and things. And we always used to have a little potato with us to put down and, and commemorate Frederick the Great. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of thing, you know. And, and like I said, there's a great r- tradition of liberalism. For instance, the the Huguenots, when they were uh, brutally expelled from France, uh, Prussia immediately sort of passed a, a law to allow them refuge into into Prussia. Um, and so you you know there's there's that legacy as well. You have a lot of kind of great philosophers, thinkers, you know, all sorts of uh, kind of intellectual legacies, uh, Enlightenment, of course. Um, so I think it's just a case of I know historians love to say it's more complicated than that. <laughs> But I'm afraid it is in this case. So Prussia wasn't like an evil militaristic state, or at least it wasn't just that. It is certainly more complicated than that. But if we want to cling to something, potatoes is where we're Potatoes! I mean, you can do a lot with potatoes. They are fairly versatile. It's hard not to love a potato. Who who wouldn't (laughs) love Even vegetarians love potatoes. (laughs) I'm going to round off with a question that that you didn't send to us. and it's just what you mentioned there in, well, two things that you mentioned, in fact. Number one, growing up around the Potsdam area. And number two, that your next book is about East Germany. So what can you tell us about East Germany and the next book about East Germany? Um, well, I, I grew up the other side of Berlin, basically on the, um, so, so Potsdam is, is just west of Berlin, just outside of yeah. it. Um, so also part of the, of the GDR of East Germany. Um, but I grew up on the other side, sort of halfway between um, Berlin and and the uh, Polish border. So my my next book is basically a history of East Germany, um, because that's also more complicated <laughs> than, than people think it is. Uh, I I just want to get away a little bit from the idea that it was a, a country kind of surrounded by a wall, dominated by the Stasi, um, and there wasn't much going on until people were liberated. In, in 1989 with the fall of the wall. So I've called it beyond the wall, um, yeah. which I mean both in a literal sense. So we're, we're kind of looking beyond the wall into this country, but also looking at the country beyond like the wall that surrounded it. That's not to, to whitewash it. The idea is to tell the entire story, basically. So to look at what actually happened, what people did, um, you know, how people lived their lives. Um, and whilst you know, I, I was still very young, so this is not a, a kind of autobiography in any shape or form. This is this is me looking at East Germany as a as a historian. But I do think that I have like a particular perspective on this, just because I, you know, obviously grew up with everyone around me having been part of of East Germany. Like my my father was an officer in the in the air force um, of of the of the People's Army, as it was called. Yeah. My my mother was a teacher, so they are very kind of not political people at all, but very involved with, with the actual sort of structures of the, of the state. And therefore, I think, you know, in terms of just talking to people all my life who were and growing up with them, basically, who were involved in one way or another with the regime, I, I think I've got a kind of 
interesting perspective on that. Yeah. I hope, and this, this will certainly be uh, a book that reflects that. I think. Yeah, would you be willing to come back on then to dispel a lot of the myths of East Germany? <laughs> I can certainly have a lot of rants about that. The amount <laughs> of stuff that I hear from from West Germans. I mean, the last time I not not the last time actually I went to Hamburg, but I went to Hamburg back in the in the nineties. Quite some years, actually, after the wall had fallen. It must have been sort of 96, 97. Um, and people asked me stuff like, you know, did you have running water? Um, or, or were, were there cars in East Germany? How did you get food? Did you have to forage for mushrooms? And I just look at them like, you know, we lived sort of like, I don't know, 200 miles away from each other. And people think it's, it's like a different continent. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of that still going on, kind of prejudices, I think, that people... Because of the way that, you know, the propaganda sort of worked on mm-hmm. both sides. But we have now sort of, as East Germans, sort of seen the other side whilst our side kind of died um, and disappeared. So yeah. I think those myths were never really um, sort of dispelled. And I just want to sort of give those like 16 million East Germans kind of their their story back, um, mm-hmm. as it were. Then, then we'd love to get you back on to do exactly that, if you would be <laughs> willing to join us. Sure. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Katya, because that's opened up a lot for me. And as I mentioned at the start, I was a beginner to uh, Prussia is Evil, and then I find out it isn't. So I've done a complete circle in the space of 40 minutes. (laughs) That's what I like to hear. If you'd like to know more about this, uh, both Prussia and pre-World War I Germany, then you should frankly start by buying and reading the excellent book, Blood and Iron, and we will have a link to that in the History Rage bookshop. And you can and should also follow Katya on Twitter, which you can do at Hoya underscore Kat. So once again, thank you very much for joining us and kicking off Series 6. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you can join the angry mob. And this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, a whole season in advance, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug with a rage of your choice. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. So we'll be back again next week. And until then, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.